Good morning, brothers and sisters in Jesus. It is good to be with you. My name is David Wolin. I'm part of the elder team and the preaching team here at New Covenant. Today we're finishing up our series on the Beatitudes. We've been in this part of Matthew chapter 5, the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount these past couple of months. It's been really good. And if you have your Bible today, turn to Matthew chapter 5. And if you are new today, uh, or if you've missed some of these uh, part of the series, uh, this, these Beatitudes, they, they're a description, a concise list of descriptions with promises attached to each describing what it looks like to live as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven here on earth. They describe the person who's truly blessed, who's truly happy, which is what the word beatitude means. And these beatitudes are not random, nor are they randomly ordered. There's a progression to them, like one layer building upon the next, showing us what it looks like to be growing into maturity in our discipleship to Jesus. So in this way, Jesus is, is showing us and inviting us to flourish in our relationship with God and with each other. But at their core, at the same time, these beatitudes are so unlike the instincts and the values of this world, which is why this series has been subtitled The Upside-Down Kingdom. Because on the surface, some of these beatitudes may seem appealing, maybe even to the outside world, like merciful or pure in heart or peacemaker. Those those sound approachable and, and good, and they resonate. But then there's poor in spirit, mourning, and meekness. Those aren't quite as innately appealing on the surface. But then we get to this last blessing. And even if you've been tracking all along with these Beatitudes, this one stands apart and stops us in our tracks. But rather than reading this one in isolation, I'd like for us to read all of the Beatitudes together one last time. We've uh, we've been doing this several times through the series, and we've, we've had a couple of preferences, some like blessed, some like blessed. They're both correct. Today we're going with blessed. And let's read it from the screen so we're all on the same page. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of God. Let's pause a moment and just pray as we begin. Father, these verses, they bring us to holy ground. All of your word is holy, but these these last three verses, 
They're foreshadowing, you're foreshadowing, Jesus, the cost of discipleship that most of your apostles would pay. And then countless martyrs through, throughout the centuries and even to today, saints whose blood has soaked the ground where they gave their lives for your sake, Lord Jesus. And by your good and gracious will, their deaths have become the seed of your church. They've accelerated the expansion of your kingdom to the ends of the earth. But you don't speak those words just to some. You're speaking them to us today, to all who would follow you. So please, God, please give us sober minds and attentive hearts and pour into us a deeper faith so that we can hear and understand and believe you, Lord Jesus, when you tell us that this is a blessing that leads to joy. Oh, I need your help to preach this, God. We need your help to hear. So be with us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let me, let me ask you a question. Do you want the kingdom of heaven? Do you really want to live like Jesus is describing in these Beatitudes? Do you want to live in a kingdom like this? And if you're thinking in your mind, yes, then the next question is, how much? How much do you really want this? Do you want it more than comfort? Do you want it more than safety? Do you want it more than achievement or success or the admiration of others or friends in high places? Do you, do you want it more than your most cherished sin? Do you want it more than anything in this whole wide world? Well, God knows the answer, the true one. At our best, moment to moment, we might think we know. But by God's grace, there is a way to know, a way to know that you know, and I think that's one of the reasons why Jesus says that those who are persecuted because of righteousness, because of him, are blessed. And in, in case you're listening to this and wondering if maybe there's a double meaning to blessed or something, Jesus leaves no doubt. In verse 12, he says, it's blessed as in be glad and rejoice. So he's not playing word games here. It really means blessed. But if we're honest, don't we find that kind of hard to compute? kind of hard to, to wrestle with. And the more we sit with these verses and ponder them, which I've been doing the last week, questions start to come up that are good for us to wrestle with. Here's some of the ones I've been wrestling with. In real life, how could someone really view their own suffering under persecution as a blessing? And to make it personal, could you do that? Could I do that? I've been wrestling with that. And did you notice that Jesus doesn't say if you're persecuted? He said when you're persecuted. So that leads to another question. Does persecution happen to all Christians? Even today in a place like America? I think we know that some Christians are persecuted here, but the way that Jesus puts this, it sounds like everyone who follows him will be persecuted. So how do you reconcile that? And that leads to another question. What kind of persecution is Jesus talking about? And, and really, we can flip that around and ask, is there a kind of persecution Jesus isn't talking about? One final one. Why? 
Why would someone be persecuted because of righteousness? Well, I'm going to strive to answer these questions today from the scriptures. And looking at this passage as a whole, here's the big idea we'll be working from. Persecution because of Jesus affirms the authenticity of your faith, the certainty of your future reward, and leads to joy. Essentially, these are three reasons why following Jesus, even into persecution, is worth it. And as we go through these reasons, we'll fill them out a little bit more, but I'll be spending a little bit more time leading us into the first one and expanding that one, because we need to talk about what persecution for righteousness is and is not. And we'll start with the latter, with what this is not. And I found the late... British preacher and scholar D. Martin Lloyd-Jones profoundly helpful uh, on this because he's writing from a different generation and from a different part of the world, the other side of the Atlantic. And there was, you know, I could hear him in his British voice, but I felt like he was speaking to right now and to our cultural moment, which of course he had no insight into at all. He's just interacting with the word and talking to the world that he was living in. So, I'll be drawing from him a bit. What persecution because of Christ is not. First, Jesus does not say, blessed are those who are persecuted because they are offensive or objectionable or because they're being difficult or to put it in Lloyd-Jones' words, because they are seriously lacking in wisdom in what they regard as being their testimony. When Marcy and I were still living in Southern California, one morning I was called in for jury duty. And and so I I went early in the morning and was standing in a really long line. I remember it was a very brisk morning. All of us could see our breath, which means we were all shivering in our flip-flops. And we were, we were, we all had the same thing in common. We really didn't want to be there. And you know how it is. And that sentiment intensified dramatically when a man walked up with a bullhorn and climbed up onto a concrete partition just a few feet from our heads and began yelling into it and began preaching basically an extemporaneous fire and brimstone sermon of sorts. And I don't remember much of what he said. I just remember how it felt. And I... Looking back, I, you know, I've wanted to give some grace to him. I've thought, well, he, he probably was a brother in Christ. But he was speaking truth without love. He made the gospel message unnecessarily offensive. And the words he chose were bombastic. And I remember thinking, I hope the way that Jesus feels to everyone who's listening right now is not the Jesus they perceive. I wanted to shout out, he's not like this. He's gentle and lowly of heart. He speaks truth in love. I don't know if this fellow was persecuted in any way. Later that day, the line moved on. I moved on into the courthouse. But if he was, if he was insulted, if he was accosted in any way, I'm not certain whether that would have been because he was being persecuted because of righteousness. It might have just been persecution because of offensiveness or being inconsiderate and rude. Second, Jesus does not say, blessed are those who are persecuted because of a cause. 
On this point, I'm just going to let Lloyd-Jones, writing 50 years ago, speak for himself. He says, There is always this danger of our developing a martyr spirit. There are some people who seem anxious for martyrdom. They almost court it. This is not the thing about which our Lord is talking. If you and I begin to mix our religion and politics, then we must not be surprised if we receive persecution. I'm not saying a man should not stand for his political principles. I'm simply reminding you that the promise attached to this beatitude does not apply to that. If you choose to suffer politically, go on and do so. But do not have a grudge against God. If you find that this beatitude, this promise, is not verified in your life. The beatitude and the promise refer specifically to suffering for righteousness' sake. May God give us wisdom and grace to have discernment in this and also in the last one, which is also challenging. Jesus does not say, blessed are those who are persecuted for being good or noble or self-sacrificing. And the difference is subtle because those things are characteristics of Christ in you. But they're not the kind that the world is offended by usually. And non-Christians can have them as well. I was thinking about Mother Teresa. She and her work could be described like this. Eighteen times she was named among the ten most admired women in the whole world by a Gallup poll that was done every year. She was applauded and admired wherever she went, but sadly, Mother Teresa did not give a clear witness to the gospel. One time she was asked if she ever tried to convert people. Here was her answer. She said, yes, I convert. I convert you to be a better Hindu or a better Muslim or a better Protestant or a better Catholic or a better Parsi or a better Sikh, or a better Buddhist. And after you have found God, it is for you to do what God wants you to do. The world's not going to persecute that. A universalistic, inclusivistic message like that. So there has to be something else beyond goodness and nobility and self-sacrifice, something very specific about the persecution Jesus is talking about. So let's get into that. I want to draw your attention to the final cadence of these Beatitudes. It goes like this. Pure in heart, peacemaker, persecuted. So one who is pure of heart will stand apart because, as the promise says, they will see God. And in God's word, anytime someone sees God, they reflect him. Moses did literally. But when Christ is formed in you, you reflect him and those who reflect God must also speak. And so the peacemaker is the one who does that, who speaks, and then in a variety of ways is interceding on behalf of Christ and of the gospel and speaking the message of reconciliation. The peacemaker speaks the gospel to the dying world around them and declares the good news and the bad news at once. That the bad news is that without Christ's blood reconciling you to God... You're dying. You're already dead in your sins, in your rebellion against God. The wages of sin is death. But there's good news, right? The good news, too, is that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus said it. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. It's the very opposite of 
the universalistic message. It's exclusive. That all ways don't lead to God. No matter how sincere or filled with virtue or good intentions or kindness or self-sacrifice, these are all self-salvation plans and they pave the road to hell. And Jesus says that one is a broad one. It's the narrow one that he's calling us to that leads to eternal life. Few find it. Jesus said so and he doesn't exaggerate. So we have to take him at his word. And if that's the message of the peacemaker, no wonder the next one is persecution. That's why this beatitude doesn't simply say, blessed are the persecuted. Full stop. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says it's when you're persecuted because of righteousness. Which, by the way, I don't know if you noticed this, that's the fourth beatitude there as well. That those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled Well, when that comes, this leads to this outcome. So what is that righteousness? It's being conformed into the very image of Christ, Christ in you. Look at verse 11. He says, Blessed are you when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. The ESV says, on my account. The New King James says, for my sake. Persecuted because of righteousness. It's just restated persecuted because of Jesus. They're one and the same. It comes from publicly identifying with Jesus, but Jesus assures us it's going to be worth it. It's going to be worth it. Let's start with the first reason why. Persecution because of Jesus is worth the cost because it, off, it affirms the authenticity of your faith. Listen to what Jesus told his disciples in the few remaining hours after the Last Supper, but before he was arrested in Gethsemane. He said to them, If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So that was one of the earlier questions. Is it inevitable that all Christians will be persecuted? If that seems a little confusing to us, when we compare that against our own life or our own experiences, I think the story of Peter later that same night actually helps. Because Peter was not persecuted that night, was he? Why? It was because Peter distanced himself from Jesus. That's why. When he was asked if he was one of Jesus' disciples, he was scared and he was intimidated. And so the first time he said, I don't know what you're talking about. And then the second and third time he said, I don't know the man. I don't know if any of us will ever be in a position like that where we're so scared and so intimidated that we'll deny having any affiliation with Christ at all. But I'll tell you what, there's a lot of ways in which we are all tempted every single day to put a little distance between us and Jesus and blend into the world around. We're tempted to speak boldly about Jesus in safe places where it's not awkward or 
if we're in a public place, maybe to phrase things in safe, neutral ways so that they sound agreeable and won't ruffle any feathers. We can easily avoid the unpleasantness by just being vague or silent. And let me put it one other way. If you hide your light, no one will try to put it out. Church, I am so convicted by this. I'm, I'm preaching to myself this morning. We tend to think of persecution as the kind that suffered in places like Afghanistan and North Korea and China and so many other places around the world. But it's interesting. Did you notice how when Jesus restates this blessing regarding persecution in verses 11 and 12, the weight is on the form of persecution that's verbal and relational. He says, when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you. You see, we're far more likely to be ostracized, avoided, disliked, maybe passed over for promotion, disliked, kept to the outside. That's far more likely than being beaten or suffering physically or being in a place even where you would give your life for Christ. Although that is common enough in world history and all over the world in different places today. That still happens. But even relational or non-physical persecution, we are so tempted to avoid that. And just like Peter that night, we can kind of see it coming. And we have a knee-jerk reaction to avoid unpleasantness. I've been thinking about that this week, and I've been so struck. God is so patient with us. How, how many chances do we get? I'm so grateful for his patience. There are some moments, maybe moments of clarity, when we sort of see ourselves spiritually in the mirror and, and have a sense of dismay because we see where we're really at. God sees that too, but you know what else he sees? With just as much clarity is who you will be who he's making you into. We are being sanctified. The Holy Spirit is cultivating inside us greater and greater affections to love Christ more and more and more as time passes and we grow in our faith. And he takes us on a path of growth even just sovereignly by the events of our lives, the things that he ordains for us, even the hard things. There's a purpose but it happens, too, just by ordinary means, by spending time in the Word and prayer and just seeking the presence of God daily in your life or showing up here on Sundays and joining with brothers and sisters in Jesus to praise and adore Christ and to hear the Word preached and to help other people take their next step closer to Jesus and then to have the humility to let someone else do the same for you. We're being shaped all the time to love Christ more. And he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. At some point, the cup is going to overflow in our lives to the point that in the place where maybe we previously lacked courage or, or gumption or just knowing what to say or knowledge or insight or whatever we felt we were deficient in, there will come a point where by the power of the Spirit, we have a chance to give a faithful witness to Christ, and we will. And not even care what the consequences may be because the love of Christ will compel us. So persecution follows witness. Uh, 
Persecution because of Christ affirms the authenticity of our faith. And I want to direct our attention back to Peter. This is sort of the theme that rolls out through the New Testament every time we, we see him. Now in Acts chapter 5, we no longer see a timid disciple, but a transformed apostle. And the cool thing is it's happened pretty fast. What was the difference? Well, by Acts chapter 5, the Holy Spirit has descended And whereas Peter was so intimidated that when one person asked him, he denied knowing Christ, but not long after, he was standing up before thousands in Jerusalem and boldly witnessing and giving testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. And so in Acts 5, the church is growing, opposition is growing, Peter and John then get arrested. And they're brought before the Jewish authorities, and they're standing in the very place that Christ did not so long before. They were sternly told not to preach in the name of Jesus, and their bold response was, we must obey God rather than people, which further enraged the Sanhedrin, the leaders, so much to the point that they were ready to have them killed just like they had Jesus. But God intervened at that point, and a moderate voice spoke up, And persuaded them to just let them go. And so it says, at the end of Acts chapter 5, it says, After they had called in the apostles and had them flogged, they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and released them. And then they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin. And check this out. Rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. And it emboldened them. Every day in the temple and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So what Jesus said would happen, that they could be glad and rejoice when persecuted, he was right. That's exactly what happened. Around the world today, things like this are happening at a pace and in a, at a scope that is unbelievable, but in our part of the world, we don't hear that much. Maybe a whisper here and there, a report here and there, maybe a visiting missionary. For the past few years, I've worked for the Far East Broadcasting Company. It's a, it's an inter, we're an international gospel broadcasting evangelistic broadcast network in 50 countries, 150 languages, and the focus is on the, bringing the gospel to the unreached. And so I've had a, a vantage point Uh, just interacting with my colleagues in some of the hardest places in the world and getting stories every week. And more more often than not, those stories come with a, you can't share this publicly, but, and then we hear something. But I have something I can share with you. And I'll give some background context first. So in China, the communist revolution happened in 1949. And when that happened... Although there had been a phenomenal Christian witness in China, Hudson Taylor and many after him, revivals, at that moment, all the foreign missionaries were expelled. Every church building was confiscated. Pastors, Christians, some were killed. Many were imprisoned. Homes were raided. Every Bible, every hymn book, every Christian material they could find was burned. The the intention was to eradicate the church. But guess what happened? Actually, a lot happened. There's, there's decades. This is a country of 1.4 billion people. 
So what happened was a work of God that was extraordinarily complex, but we can summarize it like this. Thousands and thousands of Chinese Christians discovered that everything had burned down around them and the firm foundation of Christ is inflammable and unshakable and unbreakable. And they were still standing. And they'd had, every, they'd everything, had everything taken away from them. And it was a proving ground that refined the church and this holy courage emerged and this fire burned underground brightly for decades. And then around the 1990s, there was a shift. And I got to visit China not long after this. This was a time when the restrictions were pulled back, more moderate leaders came into power, the borders were opened up, and amazingly, even the underground church began to occupy public buildings and people could pretty much practice their faith in public. There was still some oppression, but nothing like before. And so a whole generation of Christians grew up not knowing what their forebearers had dealt with and grown up under. And then, about a decade ago, a man named Xi Jinping came to power. And with him and with the administration that came with him, a whole uh, series of unraveling began and, and, the, and the acceleration of persecution began. And now it's very close to being back to where it once was. Persecution of Christians is now happening in the open. But here's what was really shocking to me. I, I was interacting with a colleague, um, a much older man than me. He's in his 80s. He's, he was part of that first generation who endured so much for the gospel. And when he was asked about the rising persecution again and what he thought, listen to what he said. He said, this is good. He said, this is good. Now, future leaders of the church, now the next generation will finally get to see and know the power of God. Their faith is going to be refined and strengthened. He said, without this, I don't believe the church in China will grow. The Lord's going to use this. So the effect of persecution because of Jesus is that your faith is affirmed and emboldened. So with that, let's move to the second reason for why persecution because of Jesus is worth the cost. And that's because it affirms the certainty of your future reward. Jesus said so. What's the promise that goes with this? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's so interesting. That's the promise that went with the first of the Beatitudes too. Did you, did you notice that? There's a, there's a repetition, almost like bookends, uh, beginning and, and ending the Beatitudes. And at the, journey, at the beginning of the journey of faith for those who are Approaching Christ, poor in spirit, the promise is the kingdom of heaven is yours. And that's no less true for them than it is for the more fully formed disciple who's even experiencing persecution for the name of Jesus. I was reminded of the parable of the landowner who hired workmen at the beginning of the day and then again progressively throughout the day and even at the end of the day. And then when it was all over, he paid everyone the same wage. It's the same. Believer. Wherever you are in your journey with Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is yours. But there's also a commendation. There's something that Jesus has here specifically for the persecuted. 
I think Peter underscores it well in his letter. This is a much older Peter now writing to the church at large. And 1 Peter actually, I think it kind of reads like a commentary on these three verses. The theme of persecution runs throughout, and Peter's encouraging the church for what they're going to need to endure it. Here's how he opens. He reminds believers of their future reward, of an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. He goes on, he says, you rejoice in this, even though now for a, little time, for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which, though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You rejoice with inexpressible, glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And Peter has the authority to speak this way. He knows first person that it's true. And so if you, when you're persecuted for Christ, whatever that may look like, you're going to find yourself in the company of the church triumphant gone before you. Jesus said that at the end of verse 12. He said, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before me. And I'm not going to flip here. My sermon would be too long. But you could go to Hebrews 11, the, the hall of faith, where we have a reference point for this, the faithfulness of so many prophets and heroes of the faith. And what was their motivation? Hebrews tell us, tells us that it was because they desired and they were focused on a future promise, a better place, a heavenly one. Specifically about Moses, it says, he considered reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt since he was looking ahead to the reward. So in that same way, we need those eyes of faith to see beyond the veil of this life. Because here's the reality. Our golden years aren't measured in years. They're measured in countless millennia. And they don't depend on social security or pensions or 401ks. By comparison, those things are worthless by comparison. There's only one way that our hearts can be shaped to see our lives and even the hard things that we must face like this. And that brings us to our third reason that persecution because of Jesus is worth the cost, and that is because it leads to joy. In his book, Desiring God, John Piper wrote, one way of rejoicing in suffering comes from fixing our eyes, fixing our minds firmly on the greatness of the reward that will come to us in the resurrection. The effect of this kind of focus is to make our present pain seem small by comparison to what is coming. Here's the amazing thing. That future joy, it leads to joy now. And it's not sadistic. It's not like the Bible is calling us to enjoy the pain calling us to enjoy Christ. There's a way in which persecution brings us nearer to Christ like nothing else does. And in the presence of Christ, joy abounds. So the more we have affections for him and his glory and his kingdom, the more those increase, the more our affections for the things of this world, anything we could lose, those are diminished 
But we have to see it through eyes of faith because the Bible is scant when it comes to the details of our eternal reward. I'm thinking back to our series in Revelation not too long ago, pointing to those things, and what we get is symbolism, figurative language like glory and brightness or joy. I'll quote Lloyd-Jones one last time. I loved how he put it. It is so glorious and wonderful that our human language is of necessity almost bound to detract from its glory. There is a sense in which even the Bible cannot tell us about heaven because we should misunderstand it. But the Bible does tell us that we will see God. We will see our Savior as he is and be changed, and our, our bodies will be changed and glorified. All that ever hindered or oppressed or persecuted will be gone. Nothing more than a flicker of a memory. What is waiting for us is indescribable joy and glory and holiness and purity and wonder and worship of the kind that we've never experienced here. And the silver lining of persecution when it comes is that it strips away from us the things of this earth that otherwise we'd rather not have taken from us. But if they are, when they are, if it all burns down around us, we too will discover that there is a firm foundation that Christ really is more than enough. So persecution because of Jesus affirms the authenticity of your faith, the certainty of your future reward, and leads to joy. Will you pray with me?